The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. He's not just above the law, he is the law. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, February 20th, 2020. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. Feeling more powerful than ever, the mayor of Gotham City issued pardons to Penguin, Joker, Riddler, Mr. Freeze, Mad Hatter, Scarecrow, Catwoman, Harley Quinn, and Poison Ivy to let the courts and the citizens know he decides crime and punishment now. And to let them know he had the power to also pardon Bane, Two-Face, and Dr. Hugo Strange. Has it only been two weeks since Trump was acquitted on charges of high crimes and misdemeanors, unleashing him to take control of our system of justice, the democratic system that has scrutinized him, his campaign, and his administration? I'm actually, I guess, the chief law enforcement officer of the country, said Trump, after telling reporters Tuesday that he still had total confidence in his very helpful Attorney General Bill Barr. But he also insisted he has the legal right to ask Barr to step in on a criminal case. I could be involved if I want to be, said Trump, allowed to be totally involved. In that surprising interview a week ago today, Bill Barr also said that Trump has never asked him to take any action related to any criminal case. Trump seized on that quote on Twitter, writing, That doesn't mean I do not have as president the legal right to do so. I do. Trump was once again asserting his belief that he as president had absolute power. The White House says Trump has no plans to fire William Barr, and the Justice Department says Barr has no plans to resign. And yet, Barr's been hinting at resigning amid an odd tension between Barr's Justice Department and Trump's White House. Their jobs are seemingly dependent on one another now, and yet they seem to be sparring even as Barr continues to grant most of the boss's wishes. The world's confidence in America's justice system is shaken to its foundation, shaken among young democracies far, far away, aspiring for their own taste of American justice, all the way down to the courthouse near you. But Trump was not through, demonstrating that as president he can do whatever he wants. Later Tuesday, to drive home that message, Trump granted clemency to 11 corrupt public figures, some of them widely despised by the public. The next day, Trump asked for and got the resignation of the Pentagon's top policy official who had warned against the withholding of aid to Ukraine, the very act that got Trump impeached. Trump continued his week-long campaign of throwing wrenches into the gears of justice as today approached. Today, the day that Trump's longtime friend Roger Stone hears his sentence for lying to Congress and for witness tampering, for which he faces at least some years in prison. When asked if he might pardon Stone, Trump told reporters that Stone had been treated unfairly but that he hadn't given any thought to a pardon. Trump's aides say he has talked about it. And when asked if he thinks Roger Stone deserves any prison time, Trump responded, you're going to see what happens. The same could be said for the cases of Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, and his former national security advisor, Mike Flynn, two loyal servants, one of whom is in prison, the other on his way. Yesterday, Trump retweeted a conservative activist's advice that he pardon Mike Flynn, indicating Trump likes that idea. It has been a dark week for justice and our democratic rule of law, as the mayor of Gotham, rather the president of the United States, freed a string of criminals. 
Quoting a presidential historian, Susan Collins was right. Trump has learned a lesson that he's unaccountable. He can do whatever he wants now with impunity. Seven people got full pardons from Trump. Four got their sentences commuted. They were not exonerated from their federal felonies, but sprung from prison early, time served. The combined list reads like a who's who of real-life villains, well-connected, white-collar criminals. Rod Blagojevich, a contestant on Trump's Celebrity Apprentice and a former Democratic governor of Illinois, was freed from prison. For trying to sell a U.S. Senate seat for cash, the justice system had sent him away for 14 years. Trump decided eight was enough. Blagojevich says he is now a Trumpocrat. A pardon went to Michael Milken, who stole a billion dollars from investors through a junk bond scam, is now both free and forgiven at the hands of Trump. Milken was the inspiration for the Gordon Gecko character in the movie Wall Street. The pardon wiped out Milken's remaining debt to taxpayers of more than $100,000. Former New York Police Commissioner Bernard Carrick, who lied to the government and cheated on his taxes, forgiven and free. Carrick was a close ally of Rudy Giuliani. In fact, once served as Giuliani's bodyguard and chauffeur. Ed DiBartolo, who once owned the San Francisco 49ers, tried to cover up a $400,000 bribe he paid to former Louisiana Governor Edwin Edwards to get a riverboat gambling license. Trump commuted the sentence of a woman who defrauded Medicare out of well over $200,000. A Texas construction executive got a full pardon after cheating on his taxes. There are 14,000 petitions for clemency on file at the Justice Department, but these are the people Trump chose to pardon, all of them directly or indirectly connected to him. And as before, he did not go through official Justice Department channels to grant these pardons. Many of the people he pardoned are Trump supporters and or people he's seen featured on Fox News Channel. If you sense another common thread through each of these cases, it is that each is a case of corruption in broad daylight in various walks of American life. When it comes to pardons, this president has a type, and he reportedly has more pardons in the works. The Guardian reports Trump also offered a pardon to WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange if Assange would say that Russia was not involved in the leak of Democratic emails that Assange had published. For those of you playing at home, that's another quid pro quo. The offer was reportedly made on behalf of the president in Trump's first year in office by then-California Congressman Dana Rohrabacher, known even to fellow Republicans as Putin's congressman. Assange is currently in prison in Britain while he awaits a court decision on the United States extradition request. The U.S. government wanted to charge him with violating the Espionage Act. Without a pardon, he faces 175 years in prison here. The White House denies the story, but... Trump's sweep of clemencies and offers of clemency now reads like a lineup of Batman villains. It was a bit of a shock at first to hear Attorney General William Barr say that Trump's tweets had made it, quote, impossible to do my job and I'm not going to be bullied or influenced by anybody. I cannot do my job with a constant background commentary that undercuts me. Sounded pretty serious. It was surprising because Barr has clearly served the president's interest from the outset, pursuing investigations into the Russia probe while making life easier for Trump allies charged with serious crimes. Not everybody took the bait. Former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara tweeted that Barr is, quote, shrewd, deliberate, smart, calculating, careful, and full of it. What was even more surprising than what Barr said was that Trump was unusually quiet on Twitter afterward and for longer than usual. 
Nixon White House counsel John Dean called Barr's surprising statement staged and said Barr likely gave the White House a heads up on what he was about to say. Even Trump didn't buy it, apparently, the White House saying he was not bothered by Barr's comments. In truth, Trump can't afford to be bothered by Barr's comments. He'll never find another AG so willing to protect him. In truth, so long as Barr continues to do Trump's bidding, Trump won't let go of him easily. Very quickly, many more people began to doubt the motives behind Barr's unexpected comments, and it wasn't because of the words of John Dean or Preet Bharara. It was instead because actions speak louder than words, and Barr's actions had seemed to follow Trump's wishes. So why did Barr speak up at all? Sources close to Barr say he really is frustrated with Trump and has been for weeks that he's told people close to the president he seriously considered resigning over the tweets. That claim had credibility problems as well. If nothing else, Trump's tweets were drawing attention to their efforts to reconfigure the U.S. justice system to suit the president, and that attention is very, very negative. So the interview and subsequent hints about resigning also gave Barr cover from the flack that was flying his way. Trump's tweets had set fires that Barr had to put out, the failing confidence in the impartiality of the Justice Department outside the department and the failing confidence in the impartiality of justice inside the department. Bill Barr had been caught helping the president protect his friends and pursue his enemies, and he'd been called out for it in the public arena and from the angry and hurt people inside his own Department of Justice. Trump tweeted he was thinking about suing everyone involved in the Mueller investigation, the investigation he and Barr had claimed exonerated him. Trump said he would even sue the Justice Department itself if he weren't the president. Trump was talking about suing Barr's own people, the ones Barr had already angered and disappointed. Sources say Barr won't be moved by that letter from former DOJ employees because he feels they've been his opponents all along. They say Barr doesn't care if his employees like him, but that he does care about overall department morale. They say that's why he's been poking the president in public, to try to make it stop before Barr loses all control at the U.S. Department of Justice. Barr had to say that his job had been made impossible. He had to say that he was thinking about quitting, whether he really intended to or not. I do make his job harder, admitted Trump. I think that's true. Yesterday, Trump tweeted that Barr should clean house at the Justice Department targeting those involved in the Russia probe. He had no intention of making Barr's job easier. He's pressuring Barr to eat his own to launch a career assault on his employees. In doing the very thing Barr had asked him not to do, it was as if Trump were trying to push Barr out of his job, and that just makes no sense since that can't possibly be what Trump wants. 24 hours after Barr's not-going-to-be-bullied statement, Trump was once again tweeting about the Justice Department, his way of rebuking Barr for rebuking him. And just hours after that tweet, Barr's Justice Department announced that it would not be filing charges against former FBI acting director Andrew McCabe, one of Trump's most targeted political enemies, James Comey and Hillary Clinton being the others. McCabe, who'd ordered an investigation of Trump on obstruction of justice, hadn't broken any laws, and the decision not to charge him for allegedly lying about a supposed leak is not what Trump wanted to hear. Trump had called McCabe a dirty cop and a bad guy. Last August, Trump was furious when he heard the Justice Department had declined to file charges against Comey over the memos Comey had written as FBI director. Aides say Trump swore for days about that decision, saying, can you effing believe they didn't charge him? 
and he was angry again in January when Barr's investigation of Clinton had also found no evidence of criminality. The tension between Trump and Bill Barr's Justice Department has been building since the Comey decision late last summer, despite the Attorney General's faithful servitude. Trump's reportedly still sore about the imprisonment of his former campaign manager, Paul Manafort. This week, one official said Trump, quote, believes very strongly that action should be taken against Andrew McCabe. Sources to the Washington Post say Trump was upset about the McCabe decision, upset about the decision, and upset about not being given a heads up about it. It was another surprising move by Barr, leaving open the question of whether there might be a rift between Trump and his hand-picked attorney general. They both continue to agree on ideology, on politics, but Barr, under pressure from all sides, seemed, appeared, to be saying that he wants what his employees want, a Justice Department free of political influence. Career prosecutors were resigning in protest of what looked very much like political influence, five of them counting the former U.S. attorney who had overseen the Roger Stone case. Andrew McCabe, meanwhile, is suing the Justice Department for firing him one day before he became eligible for retirement. But Bill Barr also seemed to be doing Trump's bidding, whether Trump tweeted about it or not. For one thing, Barr has ordered prosecutors across the country to get his approval for any investigation of any presidential candidate. It all has to go through him, the man who pursues Trump's enemies and goes easy on his friends. But also, Barr has assigned prosecutors outside the original investigations to review a number of cases that are of keen interest to Trump, including to focus on the findings of Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. That's especially interesting since at the U.S. Attorney's Office Rudy used to head, Giuliani appears to increasingly be the target of an investigation centered around his helpers, Lev and Igor. And new charges were filed against Lev Parnas this week, charges that reportedly move investigators even closer to Giuliani, an investigation that has intensified since the Trump impeachment trial. They've even subpoenaed some of Giuliani's documents. The closer the Lev and Igor investigation gets to Giuliani, the closer it gets to Trump. At the same time, William Barr has ordered that any case having anything remotely to do with Ukraine is to go through him, and that, of course, includes matters concerning Rudy Giuliani. Those prosecutors in places like Chicago and Cleveland now cannot make a move without Barr's approval or the approval of two prosecutors handpicked by Barr. It means Barr now has the reins at the once fiercely independent Southern District of New York. So it isn't clear how far the Giuliani case will actually get in the end. Trump has now contradicted his past denials about Ukraine and now admits that he sent Giuliani there to get dirt on the Bidens and the 2016 Democrats. By saying he'd sent Giuliani to Ukraine, Trump had confessed to the very thing for which he had been impeached. Trump admitted the very thing for which he was so quickly acquitted without witnesses. Trump made his confession to, of all people, Geraldo Rivera, who'd cleverly asked Trump if he's sorry he'd sent Rudy to Ukraine. No, not at all, said Trump, not realizing he'd been tricked. Here's my choice, said Trump. I either deal with the Comeys of the world or I deal with Rudy. Trump said the U.S. intelligence community had left him with a bad taste, having concluded that Russia had helped his 2016 campaign, so he chose a former federal prosecutor who's one of his. And then he chose a new acting director of national intelligence, 
who's one of his. Richard Grinnell will now head all 17 of our intelligence agencies, even though Richard Grinnell has not a day's experience in the intelligence field. But he hadn't had any experience in diplomacy either when Trump made Grinnell ambassador to Germany, where he was anything but diplomatic or liked. Richard Grinnell, who won't have to face Congress because he's just the acting national intelligence director, wink, wink. Grinnell is a Trump supporter who told the far-right website Breitbart he wants to, quote, empower conservatives throughout Europe. Grinnell is an ideologue in what's traditionally been a neutral job that's traditionally been done by people with extensive intelligence experience. Giuliani associate Lev Parnas is now directly implicating Grinnell in the Ukraine scandal, saying Grinnell promised to give Russian oligarch Dmitry Firtash the heads up if the Justice Department planned to extradite him for multiple felony corruption and bribery charges. The nation's spy agencies, starting today, are headed by a man who's there because his predecessors came to the conclusion that angered Trump, that Russia had helped Trump's campaign in the 2016 election. With Richard Grinnell now running all the intelligence agencies that came to that conclusion, Trump will never have to worry about that kind of embarrassment ever again. Grinnell can be now used as a political weapon in the intelligence community, just as William Barr is being used as a political weapon in our justice system as Donald Trump continues to overturn American government as we have known it. In the meantime, Trump administration interference continues in a number of cases. Again, Mike Flynn is soon to be sentenced for lying to Robert Mueller's investigators. The original sentencing recommendation was six months, but that sentence recommendation was reduced to just probation about three weeks ago. Stay tuned. In the weeks leading up to the Flynn sentence, Bill Barr had asked the U.S. Attorney's Office in St. Louis and the Deputy AG's Office to review the handling of the Flynn case and to keep that review and other case reviews quiet. Seasoned prosecutors don't like it when their cases get reviewed. It's insulting to have their work checked after years of successful prosecutions. Outside prosecutors are also reviewing the handling of the Eric Prince case, Prince, the founder of Blackwater and brother of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, is accused of lying to Congress during the Russia probe. Even as he complained about Trump's tweets, William Barr continued to go after Trump's enemies and to protect Trump's friends. It was Barr, after all, who had pre-sold the Mueller report as an exoneration of Trump. And it was Barr who'd launched a criminal investigation into the Mueller investigation, even though the Justice Department's Inspector General had found no damning evidence amid the Mueller team. And yet in his curious interview with ABC News, Barr had also said, If he were to say, go investigate somebody, and you sense it's because they're a political opponent, then an attorney general shouldn't carry that out, wouldn't carry that out, end quote. But instead of easing the public's mind about the stability of the U.S. Department of Justice, the words and deeds of Bill Barr just made it all murkier. The Justice Department is in crisis, its credibility in question, and the fears about its motives have generated a justified concern for democracy itself. Over the past few days, more than 2,000 former Justice Department officials have signed a public letter condemning William Barr and calling for his resignation. Many federal prosecutors across the country and the defense lawyers they meet in court have questions. Says one, nobody knows whether decisions are being made based on the facts and the law or whether they're being based on a political whim. 
Even bigger, the Federal Judges Association, with its 1,100 members, says it cannot wait until its conference in April to discuss the crisis at the Justice Department. The head of this group of federal judges called an emergency meeting on Tuesday after years of verbal abuse from Donald John Trump. This week, Trump continued his attacks on Judge Amy Berman Jackson, the judge who was expected to decide Roger Stone's fate today. Federal judges have ruled against Trump, his presidential administration, and his businesses more than 100 times since he took office. But to make his wishes clear to the judge, Trump issued a string of pardons for people accused of corruption in politics, finance, and even sports. The building tension between Trump and the DOJ came to a head once federal prosecutors asked for a seven- to nine-year prison sentence for Trump's longtime friend and political advisor, self-described political dirty trickster Roger Stone. As you'll recall from last week's report, Trump called the Stone sentencing recommendation unfair. The next day, the Justice Department announced it was reducing that request. Barr claims he was planning to ask for the sentence reduction anyway, but that Trump's tweet had made that decision look bad. Look bad for the DOJ and look bad for Bill Barr. That's when Barr said it was impossible to do his job with all these tweets. And yet he continued to do his job. And Trump continued his work as well, interfering with the Roger Stone case. Tamika Hart is a Memphis Democratic politician who says she was also the forewoman on the jury in the Roger Stone trial that convicted him. If Stone's lawyers didn't want her on the jury, they could have asked that she be dismissed during jury selection. Jurors don't often speak out, not even after a trial, but Ms. Hart said she felt she must after hearing Stone's sentence recommendation had been reduced to the point of being eliminated. Trump and Stone both seized on this simultaneously. Trump tweeted, Now it looks like the foreperson had significant bias. Well, that's all Roger Stone's lawyers needed to hear, whereupon they immediately filed court papers asking for a new trial. Trump had again abused his power as president, this time to intervene in what was supposed to have been an independent prosecution. Tuesday morning, he tweeted a not-so-veiled message to the judge in the Stone case that his friend deserves a new trial. Hours later, reports the Washington Post, a Justice Department official said prosecutors filed a sealed motion in that courtroom arguing that Stone does not deserve a new trial and that they carried that message with the personal approval of Attorney General William Barr. But in also trying to intimidate the judge in the Stone case, Trump was trying to pressure the court into deciding in his favor, trying to outmuscle the judicial branch of our government, or as Democrats describe it, an assault on the rule of law. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts had called out Trump once before for talking about Trump judges and Obama judges. They are just judges, Roberts insisted, ruling on the laws as the laws are written. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said on the Senate floor, the nation now looks again to Chief Justice Roberts to make clear to President Trump that these attacks are unacceptable, adding now would be the time for Chief Justice Roberts to speak up. It's been a week. Still nothing from Roberts. After the Washington Post reported that the Trump Organization has been charging taxpayers up to 600 bucks a night for each Secret Service member staying at Trump's resorts, the House Oversight Committee asked the Secret Service to cough up the bills. The committee wants contracts and receipts. Trump also charges $17,000 a month 
for a cottage for agents employed at the Trump National Golf Club in Bedminster, New Jersey. Even as president, Trump still owns these properties, presenting another clear violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution. Washington Post reporters were able to piece together documents showing that the Secret Service on the taxpayer's dime has paid Trump's company nearly a half million dollars, but without all the documents, it's likely a lot more money than that. The law requires the Secret Service submit a report on its spending for lodging every six months, but the Secret Service has only forwarded about half of those reports to Congress so far, and on the ones they did submit, the lines are blank for spending at Trump's Mar-a-Lago and his Bedminster Golf Club, hence the House Oversight Investigation. Trump calls her Hopi. She was one of the few people allowed to go upstairs to the residence part of the White House. She has, on occasion, steamed the wrinkles out of Trump's pants. Hope Hicks was his White House communications director in 2018 and resigned after telling Congress she'd told some white lies in the course of her duties. And after defending her boyfriend, White House aide Rob Porter, who had been accused of domestic abuse by two of his ex-wives. Hope Hicks was on board Air Force One discussing with Trump the best way to respond to news of Don Jr. meeting with Russians to get dirt on Clinton. She was there to help him craft the tweet that Trump was about to send, claiming the meeting was about Americans adopting Russian children and nothing more. Behind closed doors, Hope Hicks answered questions from Congress about her knowledge of meetings between Trump campaign officials and Russians. Now, she has returned to the White House staff as an advisor to the president after a career that began in modeling and working public relations for Melania. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan is one of Trump's fiercest Republican pit bulls on Capitol Hill. This week, briefly... The spotlight was on Jim Jordan after testimony from a former college wrestler who said he'd been sexually abused by the team doctor, as was his brother Mike. Adam DeSabato testified for a hearing in the Ohio State House that Jordan knew about the abuse and did nothing to stop it. DeSabato says he reported the abuse to Jordan and others. Quoting the ex-wrestler, they told me they went to their superiors who told them to be happy where we're at and keep our mouths shut. In fact, he says Jordan helped cover up the abuse, calling him repeatedly. I had to have my lawyer call him to tell him to stop calling. Quoting to Sabato at that statehouse hearing, Jim Jordan called me crying, crying, groveling on the 4th of July, begging me to go against my brother, begging me, crying for a half hour. Jordan has denied all this. The team doctor committed suicide before the sex abuse allegations became publicly known. It was on Valentine's Day that we learned the Trump administration was secretly planning to move a hundred of its elite tactical border patrol agents into sanctuary cities across the country to help ICE agents round up undocumented immigrants. Trump was quietly stepping up his war on immigration and cracking down on the cities that defy his policies. Among the border agents sent into these cities are members of the Border Patrol's equivalent of a SWAT team, BORTAC, it's called, and it usually just deals with the few immigrants who have a history of violence. Quoting Seattle's police chief, if you were a police chief and you were going to make an apprehension for a minor offense, you don't send the SWAT team. And BORTAC, says Seattle's police chief, is the SWAT team. This operation is expected to run through May. Bill Barr's Justice Department is also part of the crackdown on sanctuary cities. 
On orders from its commander-in-chief, the Pentagon is shifting an additional $4 billion from its budget to building another 177 miles of Trump's wall. This brings this year's total so far to well over $7 billion robbed from the Pentagon without congressional approval. The grand total is now nearly $10 billion. This time, the money will come from the part of the budget earmarked for aircraft and other equipment, combat money. It means two fewer F-35 fighter jets, two fewer Osprey tilt-rotor helicopters for the Marines, one fewer reconnaissance plane for the Navy, four fewer C-130J transport planes, and eight fewer drones for the Air Force. The National Guard won't be getting the Humvees and trucks it was expecting. And about 5,000 Army and National Guard troops remain at the border, diverted from their usefulness elsewhere in the world. In the variety of White House explanations on the decision to kill Iran's top general, a new and different one has emerged, and that's no explanation at all. After repeatedly insisting that Qasem Soleimani had to be killed because he posed an imminent threat to American lives, that explanation wasn't in the White House report to Congress. The only thing the White House report explains to Congress is what it sees as the legal justification for killing Soleimani and saying nothing about an imminent threat or a motive at all. Quoting a national security expert, it is very different from what senior U.S. officials told Congress in 2019. The House Foreign Affairs Committee is investigating. The House last month voted to block funding for any further U.S. aggression against Iran to try to rein in the president. This past Friday, the Senate voted to limit Trump's powers to order military action against Iran without prior permission from Congress. Eight Republicans joined every Senate Democrat in voting for those limits. Trump will likely veto the bill, and neither the House nor the Senate have the two-thirds majority vote to override the veto. It was, at best, a rebuke of the president in a week filled with rebukes. So Trump continues his policies unchecked by Congress, even though a majority in Congress think he should be reined in, especially after taking us to the brink of war with Iran. The Equal Rights Amendment will never pass this Senate, but it might in the next one. The House this past week voted to remove the deadline for states to ratify the ERA, which had originally been set for 1982. Now, two-thirds of our states, 38, have ratified the amendment. Some, however, didn't make the deadline, and some states have voted to rescind their ratification, even though that's not a thing. There is nothing in the Constitution about states being able to unratify an amendment, and most amendments haven't had deadlines. Republicans oppose the Women's Rights Amendment, falsely claiming that it takes restrictions off all abortion and is, besides, unconstitutional. Nancy Pelosi calls the abortion issue an excuse, not a reason, saying the ERA has nothing to do with abortion. It's about equal pay for equal work and equal pensions and equal benefits. Bill Barr's Justice Department has ordered the National Archives not to certify the Equal Rights Amendment, citing the long-past deadline. But lawsuits have been filed by the attorneys general of four states to push the amendment into the Constitution. Three red states have a lawsuit opposing its implementation in a battle that's likely to land at the U.S. Supreme Court.
and I bear sad tidings about the state of the free press in 2020 America. But before that segment, here's Salon.com's Bob Seska with an update about fake news. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. Last week, we learned about one of the most terrifying political operations in recent memory. Journalist McKay Coppins published an article for The Atlantic about Donald Trump's Death Star in Roslyn, Virginia, an office space in which Trump's campaign manager, Brad Parscale, along with a staff of hundreds, is engaged in, quote, the most extensive disinformation campaign in U.S. history. The mission of Trump's Death Star is to micro-target registered voters on social media with countless political advertisements and other posts designed to spread pro-Trump propaganda, in most cases, straight-up lies. All in all, the operation effectively weaponizes the Russian Internet Research Agency's attack on the 2016 election, but originating the same brand of awfulness domestically and under the full control of the Trump machine. We also learned that the Republican National Committee, which is merged with the Trump campaign, possesses around 3,000 data points on every American voter. That's you, that's me, that's Buzz Burbank, that's every living American who's registered. These data points include your biases, your flaws, your preferences, everything that might be pulled from your social media presence and which Mark Zuckerberg allowed to be harvested without our permission. And speaking of Zuckerberg, the Facebook founder decided after meeting with Trump that it'd be fine and dandy to continue allowing on the platform political ads that contain lies. The idea is to manipulate voters into willingly circulating the pro-Trump, anti-democratic lies without flinching, turning Facebook users into distributors of free media, of lies and propaganda in this case. There's so much more to the story, way more, so I urge you to read it carefully from top to bottom. It might be the most important political news story of the year. Since I first wrote about the Death Star last week, I've heard from quite a few readers on the left who condemned the dumbness of Trump supporters for spreading Trump agitprop, for falling for the obvious deception. But it's not just red hats who are falling for Trump's propaganda. Over the weekend, I posted a meme, ironically, I posted it on Facebook, in which I urged my friends and followers to become better consumers of digital information. New rule for political Facebook, I wrote. When in doubt, assume it's propaganda until proven otherwise. In other words, we have to stop automatically assuming a link or a news article or even a video is on the level. If it's not from a major network or publication, the information therein should be regarded as guilty of being propaganda until proven innocent. Without any filters, we're vulnerable. We don't blindly put random food in our mouths. Why would we put random information into our brains? It's common sense, especially these days. I posted the meme in the context of a Mike Bloomberg story that began on Twitter and was being shared around without links and without being independently verified. The story turned out to be true, but again... It was flying around social media before being confirmed. In fact, one of my Facebook followers posted a link in the comments under my meme. Again, a meme I posted about not sharing pro-Trump propaganda. The link was, of course, about the Bloomberg story. But when I checked the link, it pointed to a site called NewsThud. If you've never heard of NewsThud, you're not alone because it's exactly the kind of site we shouldn't be sharing online. Here's why. It turns out NewsThud is a pro-Trump propaganda site, and it was being shared under one of my statuses by a fellow liberal 
just because it appealed to my Facebook followers' opposition to and bias against Mike Bloomberg. Every story on the site represented bad news for liberals and Democrats and good news for Trump. Among the top trending stories that day, liberal activist Alyssa Milano's show gets canceled. Trump shares a hilarious video. Pelosi's financial disclosure problems. Trump and Melania wow crowd in Daytona with All-American Show. Amy Klobuchar flip-flopped on something. Pelosi flies into rage. Pete Buttigieg linked to a fake Twitter account. And so on. None of the stories were flagrantly opinionated, but each story appears to have been selected to show the Democrats in disarray, while painting Trump as the good guy here to save the day. It's a long-existing Fox News technique wheeled out during its straight news segments. Instead of spewing opinions, news items are deliberately curated to give off a negative impression of the Democrats. Clever, right? My Facebook follower grabbed the link to the Bloomberg article on News Thud, believing that because it confirmed what he wanted it to confirm, and because it seemed legitimate since it contained a tweet from Nate Silver, then it must be legit. It wasn't. Yet he shared this link without asking himself where it came from, and in the process, it ended up being seen by other people, potentially reinforcing or establishing negative ideas about Bloomberg, who could very easily become the Democratic nominee facing Trump in the general election. Oh, and news thud? Its physical address is in London. And the slogan is, News for Conservatives. But if it helps you tear down the Democrats who aren't your favorite candidate, I guess it's all fine, right? This is how the horrendousness begins. This is how Trump will win. Not only are both sides vulnerable to sharing propaganda on social media, but on the left, we're sharing stories that could seriously damage Democratic candidates, one of whom will be the only human standing between us and a second Trump term. Unless we stop doing this, especially knowing we're facing the most extensive disinformation campaign in U.S. history, Trump has already won again, and the end of the American Republic has arrived, in part due to our knee-jerk irresponsibility and thoughtlessness. It's time to wise up, or kiss all of this goodbye. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. There was a big bankruptcy this week, bigger even than the bankruptcies of the Boy Scouts of America and Pier 1 Imports. The McClatchy newspaper chain filed Chapter 11 this week, which the dean of the Columbia Journalism School calls a big, big loss for American democracy. A journalism professor at Syracuse said, There have been many sad days for newspapers over the last few years, but today might be the saddest yet. McClatchy is the second biggest newspaper chain in the U.S. Is the biggest chain far behind? The Pulitzer Prize-winning Miami Herald, which broke and pursued the Jeffrey Epstein story and which gave us authors including Carl Hyacin and Dave Barry, is part of the McClatchy chain. So is the tried-and-true Sacramento Bee covering California's capital. The Kansas City Star, which uncovered a local pipeline in the justice system that was shifting foster care kids directly into jails. The Fort Worth Star-Telegram and the Charlotte Observer still keeping an eye on their local elected officials. Public health and safety and more, they're part of the McClatchy journalism empire. 
McClatchy was founded during the California Gold Rush and just 10 years ago bought the Knight Ritter newspaper chain when times were better. McClatchy insists it won't be cutting back in its 30 newsrooms in 14 states, but there will be belt tightening. The company filed for bankruptcy protection to get out from under a $700 million debt. Company executives blame that debt on its retired employees, saying the company is paying 10 times as many pensions as salaries. The number of employees in newsrooms across the country has dropped by nearly half in the past 10 years. 20% of our newspapers have folded and not the way they're supposed to. The Miami Herald alone cut 40 jobs last month and started sharing a printing plant with a rival newspaper. And although digital newspaper subscriptions are growing at the rate of about 50% a year, that growth is not covering the loss of print subscribers. Local newspapers break news more often than TV or radio or websites or podcasters, and radio and TV and websites and podcasters get a lot of their news from newspapers. Warren Buffett sold off his 31 newspapers in January, expecting them to fail. A hungry, hungry hedge fund got a bigger piece of the Chicago Tribune chain the month before that, and the one that includes the Baltimore Sun and the New York Daily News. In a world now flooded with social media rumors, propaganda, and fake news, the world without newspapers is a lot darker. A Republican state lawmaker in Tennessee has introduced a measure that would declare CNN and the Washington Post fake news. The measure comes in the form of an amendment to another bill Tennessee lawmakers are considering. Republican State Representative Micah Van Huss of Jonesboro introduced it last week. He was hurt by a post-editorial writer's reference to Trump supporters as being cult-like. He wants the Post and CNN to be officially labeled part of the media wing of the Democratic Party, at least in Tennessee. Huss's bill has 13 co-sponsors. Believe it or not, there are ethical, unbiased, professional fact-checkers at the Fox News Channel. Fox News calls its research and analysis department the Brain Room. In early December, the Fox Brain Room published an internal dossier called Ukraine, Disinformation and the Trump Administration, a Full Timeline of Events. The report leaves out nothing in its 162 pages. All the stuff you've heard here over the past seven or eight months exactly as reported by more reliable news sources over the past seven months. Unlike its primetime personalities, this report pulls no punches about what Trump did that got him impeached. The Fox Brain Room report also pulls no punches about who's to blame for the false narratives about Ukraine offered up by the president and his supporters in Congress and his supporters on Fox News. The report puts the blame on Fox News contributor John Solomon, who it says focused on stories from Russia's disinformation campaign, used unreliable sources, misrepresented his sources, published false and misleading stories, and failed to disclose his conflicts of interest. In providing these facts about John Solomon, the Fox Brain Room was taking a swipe at Sean Hannity, who had Solomon as a regular guest throughout the Ukraine story. The Brain Room report describes Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, as having, quote, a high susceptibility to disinformation. It describes Fox legal contributors Victoria Tensing and Joe DeGeneva as spreading false and misleading stories while failing to disclose their financial motives. The Brain Room dossier includes these appearances by Solomon, Tensing, and DeGeneva in its 
Ukraine timeline and documents all the times they were guests of Sean Hannity. What we have learned from all of this is that Fox News Channel is doing some great journalism and not putting a lot of it on the air. As this crucial election year began, the Republican Party had raised seven times as much money as the Democratic Party. The RNC had $63 million. The DNC had less than $8.5 million. Meanwhile, voter suppression by Republicans continues. In mid-December, the state of Georgia purged 300,000 names from its voter registration rolls. In late December, a federal judge ruled the state does not have to reinstate 100,000 of them as activist groups had demanded. Georgia purged 1.5 million voters from its rolls between 2012 and the 2016 elections, twice as many as it had cut in the four years prior. In the swing state of Wisconsin, a conservative group is forcing state officials to purge nearly 230,000 people from the voter registration rolls in an effort to suppress traditionally Democratic voters. At a recent gathering of influential Wisconsin Republicans, one of Trump's top re-election advisors told the group, quote, traditionally it's always been Republicans suppressing votes. He later told reporters he meant Republicans have traditionally been falsely accused of suppressing votes. Wisconsin's attorney general represented the Democratic National Convention in a 2016 lawsuit accusing Republicans of, quote, repeatedly encouraging his supporters to engage in vigilante efforts when looking for voter fraud at the polls. There is no evidence of widespread voter fraud in Wisconsin. Stay tuned. But there was a small victory this week in North Carolina where a state appeals court has now temporarily blocked a voter ID law. It is the second court to rule that North Carolina's voter ID law discriminates against African Americans who are predominantly Democratic voters and that that was clearly the purpose of the law, says the ruling. The ruling means the voter ID law might not even be in effect when voters report to cast their ballots this fall. A federal court had already issued a temporary injunction against the voter ID law. That order keeps the law off the books until after the North Carolina primary on Super Tuesday, March 3rd. With 15 electoral votes, North Carolina is a battleground state this year, and Democrats just got a more level playing field there. The Republican Speaker of the North Carolina State House says he'll, quote, continue to fight on the people's behalf for a common-sense voter ID law. The tampon tax, pigeons in Trump hats, and a stinking drunk in the final segment after this. These reports are beholden to no sponsor and to no big corporation, and there's no subscription fee. But there are a number of expenses related to the production of these programs, so while this newscast is free to you, it's not free to make. If you'd like to help in this effort, please click on the PayPal Donate button on the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Some very kind listeners schedule a monthly payment. There are a lot of great books out right now, and there's still a little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, clicking through my website and bookmarking that Amazon page still helps. You may need to turn off your pop-up blocker to see all the useful links on my page, but it is both safe and helpful to do so. Whatever you do, whatever you've done, however you do it, thank you. Maybe on a warm day in January. January 2020 was the hottest on record after 141 years of taking the Earth's temperatures. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says January this year was the 44th year in a row 
in which the first month's temperature was higher than its average in the 20th century. It was the 421st consecutive month with temperatures above what was average before the year 2000, by a little over 2 degrees. The 10 warmest Januaries have occurred in the past 20 years, and the 4 warmest have been in the last 4 years. Arctic sea ice is down nearly 5.5% from our averages in the 20th century. And yes, it did get warmer in Antarctica, as experts predicted here last week. It got up to nearly 70 degrees, the warmest it's ever been on that historically cold continent, 69.3 officially. It has been warm there since February 9th when it got up to 65 degrees and kept rising 20 and even 40 degrees above normal. The Antarctic Peninsula is one of the fastest warming parts of the planet, and the glaciers are melting, shedding 25 billion metric tons of ice into the rising seas. A new book by the architects of the Paris Climate Accord claims, quote, the only uncertainty is how long will last. They predict that in as soon as 30 years, 2 billion people will live in parts of the world reaching 140 degrees. The authors admit this is a worst-case scenario, but one that we have no reason to doubt without immediate action. The book is called, This is the Decade, and We are the Generation. A lot of the plastic you throw into recycling ends up in a landfill instead, according to a nationwide survey by Greenpeace. Out of 367 recycling facilities, none of them could process coffee pods. Fewer than 15% accepted plastic clamshells, those clear plastic bottles for produce and pastries. Only a tiny percentage of the facilities could recycle plastic plates, cups, bags, and trays. They simply don't have the technology for it, and a lot of the packaging that is marked as recyclable really isn't. Greenpeace is considering lawsuits to stop that deceptive labeling. And the amount of plastic now being buried in American soil has increased ever since China cracked down on the U.S. exports of plastic waste. Greenpeace found that there is a good market for recycled plastics labeled one and two, bottles and jugs mainly, but plastics marked with a three or higher number in that triangle of arrows are probably headed for a landfill since only about 5% of that stuff gets recycled. And getting rid of those plastics is expensive for cities and counties, and it still goes to a landfill or into the ocean. The U.S. cranks out much more plastic waste and recycles much less of it than the world's other developed countries. There are just over 327 million people in the United States. Right now, China has more than twice that many people in lockdown and it's slowing the spread of the COVID-19 coronavirus in China. Worldwide, there have been over 73,000 cases so far. Well over 2,000 people have died. The most cases have appeared in China. Only 2.3% of those who've caught the virus have died from it, but that is a much higher death rate than those who die from influenza, and it is lower than the death rates from SARS and much lower than the death rate from MERS. The flu continues to take its toll, meanwhile, with 44 of our 50 states and Puerto Rico reporting high numbers of cases still. 26 million Americans have been sickened by the flu this season, with 4 million new cases in the latest weekly report. 
14,000 people have now died from the flu in the U.S. this year, including now 92 children, 14 new child deaths in the past week. The flu and subsequent pneumonia account for nearly 7% of all deaths despite the availability of vaccines to prevent the flu or to at least reduce its severity and contagion level. Take two Tylenol for a broken heart? While this study is not conclusive, new research published in the Annals of Behavioral Medicine indicate that acetaminophen, Tylenol, may be good not just for physical pain, but for emotional pain as well. Acetaminophen, on the market for 65 years now, has also been linked to reduced feelings of empathy. Doctors are recommending patients be careful about abusing a medicine for physical pain to try to make their emotional pain go away. A Tennessee lawmaker, another one, but yes, Tennessee again, a Tennessee lawmaker wants to exempt tampons from the state's upcoming tax-free weekend. Although other products are classified as the basic necessities that are always tax-free in Tennessee, tampons are not. Republican State Senator Joey Hensley of Hohenwald says he's afraid women will run out and buy tampons in bulk. There's really no limit on the number of items anybody can purchase, says Hensley, who fears those products won't sell and won't be taxed when the tax holiday is over. I would hope they buy as much as they can, says the bill's sponsor, Democrat Sarah Kyle of Memphis, adding, these people just don't have the funds and I'm trying to remove this barrier. She says if the state can afford to give up taxes for a few days on luxury items like electronics, it can survive a tax holiday for tampons. Radio astronomers in Canada have, for the first time, picked up signals from space that come in a pattern. They first detected the signals a little over a year ago, a pattern of rapid bursts, the pattern appearing and disappearing about every two weeks. The scientists say the signals are coming from a galaxy 500 million miles away. There are theories, of course, about this pattern, whether it's stellar winds or a large object orbiting a star that make it go in and out. And then there are those who prefer to think someone's trying to get in touch. But scientists believe it would take a civilization far more technically advanced than our own to produce these bursts that last only a few milliseconds. That's what the scientists believe. There was no way the Boy Scouts of America could pay for all the sexual abuse lawsuits after losing more than a fourth of its members over the last 10 years and after losing a partnership with the Mormon Church. Investigators have found nearly 8,000 perpetrators of abuse in scouting and well over 12,000 victims. The BSA had to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection to save the 110-year-old organization from total destruction. A trust is now in place to try to compensate the victims of the sex abuse, but that may not help the local chapters, which are often named in the victims' lawsuits. The National Council says it will do what it can to help as it continues to step up background checks and other measures to prevent future child abuse. Sonic the Hedgehog is the favorite movie in theaters this week with $57 million on its opening weekend. Birds of Prey was second. Bad Boys for Life drops to fifth. Jumanji to seventh. And Oscar's best picture, Parasite, is down there at number eight. Harrison Ford in Jack London's Call of the Wild opens tomorrow. For all the movies, plus theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. If you watch the TV series MASH, 
You probably remember Nurse Kelly. She appeared in 150 episodes. Actress Kelly Nakahara died peacefully Sunday at her home in Pasadena, California, surrounded by family and friends. Cancer took her at age 72. Ms. Nakahara wasn't a big star, but she had a big heart. Loretta Swit remembers Kelly as the sunshine on the set. Mike Farrell wrote, A light has gone out of the world. Madge was on for 11 seasons, early 70s through early 80s. Kelly Nakahara also appeared in Little House, NYPD Blue, and Sabrina the Teenage Witch. She also had roles in She's Having a Baby and Clue. And Good Times actress Janae Dubois, who also wrote the opening theme for The Jeffersons, has died. She passed unexpectedly in her sleep at her home in Glendale, California. Janae Dubois, who played the Evans family neighbor Wilona, was 74. She also appeared in Diary of a Mad Housewife, Tropic Thunder, and Charlie's Angels, Full Throttle. Producer Norman Lear remembered her by saying, I love that she wrote the theme song for her passing. Moving on up. The Fresenius Kidney Care Clinic in Port St. Lucie allows patients to bring friends, pets, and comforting items from home when they show up for dialysis. But they're drawing a line at a Florida man's insistence on bringing a life-sized cardboard cutout of Donald Trump. At first, he just brought an 8x10 framed photo, but the likenesses grew to life-sized over time. It just feels like bringing something from home to make you feel comfortable, says the pro-Trump patient. But the last time he showed up with the cutout, he was told he couldn't bring it in. So he and his cardboard Trump turned around and left. And that's why Nelson Gibson has stopped going for his life-saving dialysis. They told me it wasn't a rally, says Gibson, adding the cutout takes up no more room than a trash can. An update now on the pigeons in hats phenomenon in Las Vegas. I reported on December 12th that someone in Vegas was gluing little cowboy hats onto the heads of wild pigeons and turning them loose again on the strip. A bird rescue lady stepped in, hoping to help these strangely abused pigeons. The phenomenon faded until this week in the days surrounding Wednesday night's Democratic debate in Las Vegas. Then the pigeons in hats started showing up again. But this time they were in little orange wigs or wearing bright red caps that read, Make America Great Again. The pigeons are Trump supporters, or the other way around. They were released by the dozens into the Las Vegas skies as a protest against the Democratic debate and to herald the arrival of Donald Trump for one of his rallies. The group that launched them insists no pigeons were harmed in the making of this stunt, explaining the hats and wigs have been affixed with eyelash glue that folds off in a day or two. The group says the stunt was months in the making, including the care and feeding of the pigeons. Described as a radical underground satire group, it calls itself Pigeons United to Interfere Now, or Putin for short. Part of a lake in aptly named Lakeland, Florida, had to be shut down on Valentine's Day on account of snakes. Brown snakes swarmed into the lake that's about halfway between Tampa and Orlando, and people stayed out of the water. Officials were likely more worried about the snakes than the people, since the Florida water snake is a non-venomous native species and is very much a part of the state's ecosystem and should not be disturbed, said the Lakeland Parks and Rec Department. The snakes had gathered on Valentine's Day because it's their mating season. When mating's over, they'll slither their separate ways. 
47-year-old Jeff Gebhardt of Prairie Village, Kansas, is willing to pay for it. Unlucky in love, including online dating, Jeff decided this was his last resort, a $25,000 reward for whoever set him up on a date that led to a relationship. Women who suggest themselves are not eligible for the money. There's a website to register who says romance is dead. She got her baby's birth on video. A Utah woman being driven to the hospital by her husband would not make it on time. The baby was coming now. Her husband flagged down a cop in suburban Salt Lake City who put on a pair of gloves and got to work delivering the woman's healthy baby in the middle of morning rush hour traffic. The birth was recorded by the officer's body camera. A Swedish woman visiting an art exhibit discovered a piece that had been created from an audio cassette mixtape she had recorded more than 20 years ago. She had lost the tape while on a family vacation to Spain when she was 12. It was water damaged after she lost it and the damage showed in the artwork. She's since been able to recreate the tape with many of the original tracks, including songs by Shaggy, Bob Marley, The Pet Shop Boys, Soul Asylum, and because she was 12 at the time, several Disney songs. The artist says the original tape will be returned to the woman once the art exhibition has ended. Portland, Maine, 1973. A high school girl named Deborah lost her boyfriend's class ring in a department store. Sean McKenna had given it to her nearly 50 years ago to wear as he was headed off to college, and she lost it. Sean didn't mind, but Deborah was upset, and it haunted her for years, even though Sean married her four years later. Sean and Deborah were together for 40 years until he died from cancer three years ago. And suddenly, the ring has finally been found, six inches under the soil on a forest floor in Finland, all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. No one has any idea how it got there, but they have a lot of ideas about why it's reappeared. From the home office, as crimes go, this one was planned in great detail. Three men robbed a CVS pharmacy in Clearwater, Florida. They had cased the joint the day before, and moving in at 5 a.m. on New Year's Day, they wore blue surgical gloves so as not to leave prints. They brandished guns and brought with them zip ties to cuff the employees. They filled white garbage bags with bottles of pills, more than 10,000 tabs of the opioids hydrocodone and oxycodone, well over $300,000 worth. The crime was so well planned, the drug robbers might have gotten away with it if they hadn't left a trail of pill bottles that led police like breadcrumbs to a house with the drugs and robbers inside. The robbers had, during their getaway, been dumping the pills out of the bottles and tossing the bottles into the street, leaving a trail for police. But at least they didn't leave any fingerprints. And finally, it wasn't a cloud of suspicion that led police to arrest a drunk driver in Berlin, Germany. It was a cloud of cologne. It started when a 26-year-old driver passed the cops at a high speed with his headlights off. The officers gave chase. Finally, the driver pulled over and fled on foot. They had little trouble finding him. A trail of strong-smelling cologne led them to some bushes nearby where they found the man hiding. Perhaps to try to disguise the aroma of another alcohol-based product, he had doused himself with a powerful cologne. The same powerful smell in the car identified the driver. 
The blood alcohol test showed the young man was way, way over the legal limit. So the man wasn't just drunk. He was stinking drunk. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening. And your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.